Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast on Legal Talk Network. I'm Fabiani Duarte, chair of the ABA Law Student Division. I'm a third-year law student at Mercer University's School of Law in Georgia. And I'm Madison Burke. I'm the 12th Circuit Governor of the Law Student Division. I represent the law schools in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, and Alaska. And I am a 3L at the University of Washington School of Law in Seattle. Our show today is presented by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. In this monthly podcast, we interview guests and cover topics of interest for law students and recent grads, from finals to graduation and the bar exam to finding a job. We hope this show is a trusted resource for you, our listeners. Thank you for joining us in our continuing discussion on student debt. In our last episode, we talked with CEO David Klein from Common Bond about smart ways to tackle the complexities of student debt that many of us know we need to deal with after law school. Among the many issues discussed were whether or not to go to a less expensive school that's lower ranking over a higher ranking school that's also more expensive, how to factor in performance scholarships when you're making borrowing decisions, some of the biggest mistakes that prospective borrowers make, variances in income for different areas of the law, and also income-based repayment uh, programs or prepaying on your loans before the payments become due, calculating your your cost of living into how much you're going to borrow. And we also went through a specific case study to help uh, demonstrate and, and illustrate these points for our listeners. So for today's show, we welcome our second guest on the topic, Stephen J. Dash. Stephen founded and serves as CEO of Credible, a company that allows borrowers to receive competitive loan offers from vetted lenders. Uh, Mr. Dash founded Credible because of what he describes as his sheer disbelief at the burden student debt placed on young Americans, a problem that doesn't exist in his native Australia. As a result, Mr. Dash believes the U.S. student loan market is in need of an increased transparency and sees the U.S. student debt industry as a global anomaly. Stephen's also a former J.P. Morgan investment banker and more recently founded QC Media. Like him, you might feel that there is in general an even significant lack of understanding about borrowing and student debt. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, guys. Thanks very much for having me. All right. Yes, sir. So did we miss anything? <laughs> no, I think that's a, that's a fantastic uh, introduction and summary. So uh, thank you very much. Glad to be here and looking forward to the discussion. So for our, our listeners, I know they've been bedazzled by uh, Madison and my voice for the past several episodes, but now that we have an Australian on, on the line, we have to ask about uh, your background a little bit. How did you end up in the, in the States? So I moved over in 2012 to set up Credible, um, uh, and and really the catalyst was um, I saw an opportunity to build a platform that was at its core consumer centric. So to help people understand what is an incredibly complex 
uh, set of circumstances that they graduate with um, and help them understand what options are out there, whether it's things like uh, some of the federal programs that exist um, or it's things like student loan refinancing, which is where we've really where we've really focused our attention um, and we've, we've built various tools and, and resources to help individuals, so be it students, parents, co-signers or recent graduates, um, manage their student loans and understand their options. In the past, uh, uh, Stephen, you've talked about and written about how in your native Australia, uh, college students and graduates aren't forced to take on the large amounts of loans that uh, we experience Um here in the states for financing education. So why is that? Just very quickly, I describe it as a global anomaly, and and that has a that tends to have a negative connotation, but it's not necessarily it's not necessarily intended to have a negative connotation. The system uh, in the U.S., you know, college is a really big part of society, um, and and it is in Australia as well, but it's a little bit of a different structure. So let me just touch on a couple of high level points. Uh, the the cost of college is is lower in Australia. You know, most people uh, do not live on campus, um, and uh, and most people do not graduate with the same level as of debt as as they do in the U.S. Um, so that, that, that they're sort of that's sort of one major difference. Um, the second major difference is the way college is financed in Australia and a lot of other you know a, a lot of other countries, whereby. Um, the, 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 basically, the federal government is subsidizing and providing loan programs, which is similar to the U.S. Um, but, but the way those loans are repaid is a little different. So, the, the, in Australia, you'll graduate with what's called a HEX debt, a higher education debt, and that debt, um, the way you repay that debt is with pre-tax income, and it happens automatically. So it's not like in the U.S. If you have um, you know loans to repay, you're paying out of post-tax cash flow, um, and if you have a private lender, you're you know you're, you're you're paying directly to that private lender. So it works on a pre-tax basis, and and a, a really key point here is that the interest rate on student debt in Australia is equivalent to inflation. So that it has a student debt carries a zero percent real interest rate. Um, so that you know is obviously a benefit for borrowers, for students, for graduates, um, in that their you know the interest repayment is significantly lower than what it is in the U.S. So it's a very different structure. It's not an apples for apples comparison, um, but what that you know the, that difference in structure really did for me was illuminate the need for better understanding for graduates in terms of their options when they do graduate in the U.S. Just a couple of questions. So your plan actually sounds very similar to some of the aspects of uh, presidential candidate Marco Rubio's plan for student debt repayment. But I'm wondering, and I know this is one of the big issues when um, Congress is voting whether or not to continue certain subsidies to student loans. Is it the Australian government that subsidizes so the interest rate can remain so low or how how is Australia able to keep an interest rate equal with inflation? I, I have some loans that are over 7% interest, so it would obviously be great if I could get an interest rate that was closer to inflation. Yeah, so the, the short answer is yes, the, the federal government does subsidize um, or lends the money at a 0% 
real interest rate. And that's a, you know, that's a, a policy decision. I think in the US, it's a little different, right? The, the, the debt, the, the amount of student debt outstanding, particularly that held by the government is very, very, very significant. And really there's, and I don't want to get too political here, but there's really a question around wh- where do you draw the line between something that is a, you know, a, a subsidy or a right and something that is a loan. And I think that's really the debate that's going on in Washington at the moment is, you know, should college be free? You know, we, we see that debate happen um, happen a lot. Really, it's a question of, you know, where do you draw the line on a subsidy versus a loan? And I think that's where, you know, the political debate is. And I think it will, <laughs> I think it will be there for a long time. I don't think there's a right answer, but it's, it's definitely a topic worth worth debating. You, know, you see the certainly in, a, in an election year, you're seeing those views out in the public forum and it's getting a lot of attention. Yeah. So for those, it's estimated 40 million of us Americans have student loan debt um, at more than $1.3 trillion of student loan debt. So what are some of the ways, you know, no matter what policy decisions are made in, in Washington, we're still going to have to pay these loans back. So what are some ways that students and and especially those graduating soon or who have just graduated, what are ways that they can take control of that future, their financial future with regard to repaying these these loans? Yeah. So broadly, our, our general advice and, and I think this is sound advice really for any type of debt, but principally for student debt, given, given the complexity, given the confusion that exists, given the fact that a lot of people have multiple loans, given the fact that a lot of people are not aware of their options. We say, make sure you have a plan. So the first step is to understand the situation you're in. And that means looking at how much debt do you owe? Who do you owe it to? What, what is your earnings? What sort of earnings are you making? What are your monthly expenses? And sort of drawing that out and saying, all right, well, I have, you know, this the, taking stock of the situation is really the first, the first step. The second step is then to investigate the various repayment strategies or repayment options that you might have. And broadly, we think about those repayment options or strategies in sort of three broad buckets. Um, and, 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 and those are you know, consolidation, which is what's referred to as the Federal Loan Consolidation Program, and I'll, I'll get into the detail on that in a second. The second is pay-as-you-earn. So there's a whole host of programs, typically federal government programs, that allow people to, to repay their student loans based on income rather than just a fixed amount. And I will add that that is one of, one of the other core features of uh, what happens in Australia. You repay based on your earnings. So it's not a flat, you owe me this much per month. It's, depend- it's, it's dependent on earnings which ultimately reduces default rates and which in turn reduces the, the ultimate cost of, of the loans. Um, and the third bucket is to consider student loan refinancing. And I will say that that's not the right option for everyone. It really depends on someone's individual circumstance. But increasingly over the last you know three or four years, this market has really um, expanded these options available for recent graduates or even not so rich recent graduates who are still repaying their loans 
can make a lot of sense for people. So I'll talk about that in a little more detail as well. But I would say broadly, once you've, descri- once you've defined your situation, understood the types of loans that you have and your capacity to repay those loans, there's really kind of those three big buckets of options available to people. So let me talk in just a little more detail on each of them. So federal loan consolidation is something that's been reasonably popular over the last decade. And this is a product that the federal government has developed. And what it allows people to do is basically consolidate multiple federal loans into a single loan. So the way that works is, let's say you have, you know, from from uh, law school, you have, you know, five, six, seven different loans from each each quarter or each semester, and they all have different interest rates, different balances, maybe even different loan services. You can use the federal loan consolidation program to pull all of those loans into a single loan with a with an interest rate that ultimately is the weighted average interest rate of all of those individual loans. So it's really a way of organizing into a single loan your various, you know, the various loan federal loans that you might have outstanding. And so that's the important distinction there between consolidation and the third bucket that I mentioned, which is refinancing, is the interest rate. So the interest rate on a federal consolidation loan, as I mentioned, is the weighted average interest rate of those loans that you're consolidating. Whereas refinancing, typically people go through that process to get a lower rate, so to, to, to actually change the interest rate that they're paying on their, on their student, student loans. But one of the benefits of refinancing is that you will oftentimes consolidate your loans as well. So I'll get to that in a second. The pay-as-you-earn program is in the process of uh, being simplified. And, and basically, at a high level, these programs exist to allow borrowers to repay their loans in accordance with their earnings, so their, their income. Certain people, you know, there's eligibility requirements for some of the pay-as-you-own programs. As I mentioned, they're being sort of simplified at the moment to allow people to sort of better understand the various pay-as-you-own options. Um, but these are often, these programs are often great for people who are potentially struggling with their repayments. You know, they're, they're not generating enough free cash flow in any given month to make the payments on these federal loans. And so they can also stretch the duration of the loan repayment. The third category, which is student loan refi, and something that we're very focused on at Credible.com, is a process whereby a private lender, so think of a bank or a a marketplace lender or a credit union or a, a portfolio lender, who will basically look at your situation, credit assess you, and may offer you a new loan, if you like, that allows a borrower to uh, receive a lower interest rate or a lower monthly repayment or a lower total cost of the loan over over the the term of the loan. Um, Because what they're doing is they're saying, well, your risk in, in our eyes is lower than the risk that you've been assessed or in fact haven't been assessed at if you've taken out a federal loan where everyone gets the same rate. Um, and therefore, they're able to offer a, a, a potentially better product for you. 
And so we've seen student loan refi over the last three or four years really explode. You know, when Credible started in 2012, there was really only one lender offering this type of product where you could refinance both your federal and your private student loans into a new private student loan. Um, since 2012, the number of lenders in the space has dramatically expanded and we sort of see about 15 lenders of significance that operate this with this type of product in the market today. And that's really good for consumers. Honestly, it gives people a lot of choice and it gives people the ability to potentially save, you know, literally tens of thousands of dollars in interest by looking at some of these options. So I know that's a very long-winded question. Why don't I pause there and see if you have any sort of questions? Yeah, no, that that's excellent. Actually, you know, one of the things that we have noticed is so that's so important for for students and graduates uh, to do is to be able to have a basic understanding of this language and terminology that we're swimming in. So I appreciate you taking the time to to parse each of those out. So let's just go a little bit deeper then on 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 these three. So for example, the second one you were talking about, the pay as you earn. There is um, recent information from the Department of Education that default rate among recent graduates are falling uh, and that loan servicers deserve a big part of the credit for signing up more than 5,000 borrowers a day for income-driven repayment plans. Uh, so I think that's that second bucket that you're you're talking about. Um, but I know that there's also some downsides to that and to the consolidation option and the loan refinancing option. Could you talk about some of the, the cons as, uh, as well as the pros you've already mentioned? Sure. So I guess in, let's go through the buckets. I mean, in the first bucket, uh, really some of the cons are that you're not necessarily getting a, if I compare um, direct consolidation or federal loan consolidation to refinancing, um, you're not necessarily resetting or getting a new interest rate on your student loan. The direct consolidation program is really just a way of organizing all of your loans into a single into a single loan to simplify the way you're going to repay it. The second bucket, the income-driven repayment plans, or I, I refer to it as pay-as-you-earn, which is one of the popular ones, there's really kind of four buckets of that program, and they're all a little bit different. There's the, the repay plan, R-E-P-A-Y-E plan, which is basically you repay 10% of your discretionary income as a, as a payment amount. There's the the... the PAYE plan, which is again generally 10% of your discretionary income. It caps out at a 10-year standard repayment plan amount, so you wouldn't pay more than what you would pay on a standard 10-year repayment plan. And then there's the IBR plan. Again, it's 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 10 or 15% depending on when you graduated, and again, it's capped at no more than the 10-year standard repayment plan amount. And then there's the income contingent repayment plan. This is um, basically a program where you pay 20% of your discretionary income or what you would repay on a, a fixed payment over the course of a 12-year loan that's adjusted for your income. So there's a lot of complexity around some of these programs and, and they're really um, you know, the government is in the process of trying to simplify some of these things. As far as the income driven repayment plans and the and the downfall of those programs, they are a federal program, right? So all of the federal protections that people talk about, deferment, forbearance, um, so those uh, deferment and forbearance are basically if you get into into difficulty and you lose your job or you have, you know, a, a, an illness or something like that, you can 
often apply for these programs that allow you to pause or defer some of the payments associated with a federal loan. So you'll hear people talking about protections that are associated with federal loans. And this is one of those income-driven repayment plans are one of those protections in addition to direct consolidation, in addition to forbearance and deferment that I just mentioned. There's not a huge amount of downside if an income-driven repayment plan is right for a particular individual. There's not a huge amount of downside associated with those programs because you can always refinance out of these federal programs into a private program. So if you if you did sign up for an income-driven repayment plan, there's nothing stopping that individual from going and ultimately refinancing with a private lender. However, if you do refinance with a private lender, and this is into the third bucket, um, you do lose those protections. So we're always at pains to make sure people are aware of the fact that if you do move to a private lender, and there's plenty of good reasons to do that, principally to reduce the interest that you're paying on a student loan. But you do need to be aware that you do give up some protections, income-driven repayment and direct consolidation, forbearance and deferment. Some of the private lenders do offer similar programs, though they're not exactly the same. So people should be aware of that. And really what you've got to do is weigh up the pros and cons and say, hey, look, if, I can, if I'm paying 7% on my you know, student loans today and I can go to a private lender and get a fixed rate of 4%, you know, that's a that could be a very very significant saving for someone with for a lawyer who has $150,000 in student debt. That's a that's a really significant saving. So it's weighing those things up and it's each individual has to do so with respect to their personal situation. That's getting to something very interesting. You you talked about those different protections that you have and the difference between the the private and federal loans. You listed a few of them. Could could you define or or go a little more deeply into what is deferment, what is forbearance, or what are some of those other protections that the different types of loans have? Yeah. So um, deferment is is basically it basically allows the borrower to postpone a payment on a. Uh, one of the federal loans. So again, I'll just step back and describe a couple of different types of loans and, and people may have heard of these these types of loans. So the most popular kind of loan program really for, for undergrads anyway is the, is the Stafford loan program. They can be unsubsidized or subsidized. So I won't get into that detail, but broadly a Stafford loan is a is a loan that's used for undergrads. A PLUS loan is typically a loan used by parents or graduates. And so for these federal loans, be it Stafford or, or a PLUS loan or a, a different type of loan called a Perkins loan, these are all federal loans. And deferment basically allows people who are, who are holding those, those federal loans to postpone a payment if, if there's a, you know, under certain circumstances, if there's a, a particular situation that occurs. So I mentioned losing a job or an illness or something like that. Forbearance is a period during which your payments are temporarily suspended or reduced. This is more of a subsidy or a grant that would occur if you're unable to make a loan repayment under a certain circumstance. So deferment's really postponing and and forbearance is where the lender, the government, will uh, help you make those payments or reduce those payments under certain circumstances. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate uh, those explanations, uh, Stephen. In a recent article that you wrote 
for Forbes, you said that the best thing you can do for yourself if you have student loans is to evaluate your current student loan situation and determine if there may be another repayment option available that's better for you. So I'm sitting here just like many of our listeners getting ready to graduate in a couple of months. And what is it that I need to be looking at? How do I make that evaluation to decide if there are better options for me? Right. So um, I think if I refer back to those three buckets, they're really the broad options that are available. We put together a bunch of resources. So we have a resource center on credible.com, which, which really looks at all of these things. So we have a refinancing guide or a payment guide, um, guides for particular professions, hints and tips on how to think about your options. And that's really something we, we really promote. The way to think about it is, as I mentioned, take stock of what you've got and then understand those three buckets, those various options. And it really depends on someone's individual circumstance. So as an example, if you're a recent law graduate and you're working in private practice and you're easily able to afford your monthly repayments, you might have a federal loan, you may not intend to go and work in the nonprofit industry where some loan forgiveness programs are available and you, you know, you're, you're pretty set on a path of, of private practice, refinancing might be a great option for you. Really, it depends on someone's individual circumstance. Conversely, if you were looking to, once you've graduated, start to work in a nonprofit organization, there are loan forgiveness programs that are available. So refinancing is, is probably not a good option in that case. A third example might be that you know, you've graduated and you're struggling to make your monthly repayments one of these pay-as-you-earn programs might be uh, appropriate for for that particular circumstance. So I really, you know, tr- trying to keep things super simple and high level, those sort of three buckets of options are really the way I would recommend people start the process of understanding and, and managing and repaying their student loans. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of detail that goes within each of those buckets and, you know, which program do you select and so on and so forth. And our resource guides are, are designed to help people navigate that process. Uh, Stephen, is, is it true that, you know, talking about the buckets that you spelled out for us, that once you start making better money and in the income-based repayment plan, more of that, you don't get to take home as much of a check uh, under the second bucket, the... Um, pay as you earn, right? Uh, because it, it it's going to eat up a little bit more. And then there's also, you know, some issues with and the, the forbearance that you were talking about, where the principal goes up during that time, even though there's that special grant that's that's allowed, there's more of a of a chunk of principal there. And so there's there's always that that other side of the coin, right to some to some of these plans, what are some issues that uh, students can face if they they either don't choose one of those plans uh, and uh, they don't end up repaying. What what are some issues they could end up facing potentially? Uh, you mean if they default on their loans or right? Right. So um, what we're seeing is that services typically you know services are very incentivized and you know it's their job to make sure people are making the repayments on the loans that they took out. Um, so what will typically happen is you'll get. You know, if you default on a loan, the first step is you're you're late on a payment, right? You'll get that your servicer will notify you. They'll try to work with you, and I, you mentioned the CFPB's report and and praising services for the work they're doing. They'll typically work with an individual to try and understand the circumstance and the situation, and and try and work out a repayment plan and sort of promote some of these income-based repayment plans 
or some of the direct consolidation plans. Um, in some cases, private loan consolidation can, or refinancing can make sense for some individuals. But ultimately, that's that's the first step, that the servicer will contact you, you'll work with the servicer to understand your various options, and they're required by law to make you aware of various options that exist. And there's been a big push by the government around the, the income contingent repayment plans or income-based repayment plans. But then ultimately, if, if you default on a loan, you, you go through a collections process and it's, it's, it's not dissimilar to how it would work for a, for a mortgage or an auto loan. The servicer um, or the debt collection agency would, would be contacting the individual to, to try and work out a, a settlement on the, on the remaining loan that's outstanding. Um, now, of course, under most circumstances, you cannot declare bankruptcy and have your student loans removed. So that is a unique element of, of an education loan that does not exist for other consumer loans like you know a mortgage or an auto loan or a, a personal loan. So that's, a, that's something for people just to be aware of. But in most cases, services are working with individuals who are delinquent or are, are late on payments uh, to try and work out a, a plan that works for both, for both parties. Right, and so let's uh, let's hope you know that we we don't get there and to that to that situation. But I know it's 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 more more common than than we think. So uh, when the grace period ends and we we have to pay back these loans, how quickly should they be paid back so that we don't have to face some of those issues of, of entering default and 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 facing the consequences of not paying the loan back? Yeah, I mean, every individual is different in terms of um, how their loan is structured. But um, typically, you know, uh, people have around a 10-year um, loan repayment period as a just a really general statement. Um, one of the benefits of student loan refinancing is that borrowers can elect to change their repayment term, right? So if, let's say, a a law student graduates law school and they have $150,000 in debt and really they want to pay that back over 20 years rather than, you know, let's say they have a 10-year loan to start with. Um, student loan refi gives them the ability to do that. Now, they can also do that with some of the pay-as-you-earn programs, again, dependent on what their income structure looks like over time. A lot of people are using the private student loan refi product to either extend or shorten the duration of of their student loans in addition to um, reducing the interest rate on those student loans and ultimately reducing the total amount that they're going to repay over over the life of the loans. So really the, the short answer is it depends on the individual and depends on the ind individual circumstance as to how long it will take them to, to repay their loan. But obviously good advice is when the statement comes out, make sure you pay on time. Um, a lot of people set up a an ACH payment, so it's a direct debit, and they don't have to worry about you know writing a check every month. That's that's good advice as well. And on refi, a lot of the private lenders are offering a, a further discount. Usually, it's twenty five basis points or a quarter of a percent if if an individual does set up an ACH payment because it obviously helps with the whole efficiency of collecting the the principal and interest from the lender's perspective. All right, thanks. Yeah. So one thing that you've talked about in some of your, your writing is something called the law school death spiral. Sounds very ominous. Could you explain to our listeners what that is and why we as law students should be aware of it? So I think you're referring to what's happened over the last sort of five or six years in terms of the, the difference between the return on investment that people are getting from a, from a law degree. 
This is a, a question of, you know, when people make a decision to go to law school, or really there's a whole bunch of professions that this could apply to. But we always say, make sure you look at the return on investment of a college degree or a profession. And, and what that really means is, look, there's a cost to go to college. It's going to cost you X. And as a result of going to college, we all hope that as a res- uh, you know, that we're going to earn X plus Y when we graduate. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a return on investment question. Um, and what we've seen really over the last, I guess, five, six, maybe, maybe decade is that that ROI equation has changed with the difficult economic circumstance that we had in sort of the late 2006, 2007 beyond. Uh, it's obviously recovering now. And you mentioned earlier that delinquencies are down more broadly on student loans. But what we say is make sure you're assessing the ROI on your college investment. And it's, it's true for law students. It's true for physicians. It's true for accountants and teachers. You know, it's just one of those elements that people need to assess when they're making the decision about which profession to get into, which school to go to. You've got to assess the cost of that investment against the income that you're going to receive as a result of that investment. So that's you know really, I think, simple but really sound advice for people. Just make sure you know what, what that looks like. Stephen, so we've talked about a lot of different details. You've helped define a lot of terms and helped take us in, in different directions. So just uh, as, as one of your final comments, what do you think are maybe the, the top three things, top five things, uh, practical tips that you want law students listening to this podcast today to take away? What would you say are the first steps borrowers should take? So the first step is, and I mentioned it at the top of the program, understand your situation, number one. Number two is make a plan and stick to the plan. So that means once you've taken stock of your, your, your circumstance, understand what in those three buckets, which one, which one are you most likely to sort of benefit from? And as I mentioned, a lot of people are finding that student loan refinancing can save them a ton of money. So what I would say, if that is the bucket that, that's right for a particular individual, then, and I don't want to you know, be too salesy here, but if you go to credible.com, you're able to receive offers from multiple lenders. So in 90 seconds, you can get offers from up to nine vetted lending partners. And, and that's a really small investment for someone to make. It doesn't affect your credit score. And you can see what's available out there. So it's a really simple way of understanding what refi options might be available. If refi is right for you, or if income-based repayments are right for you, or if direct consolidation is right for you, the final thing I would say is once you've made that plan, stick to the plan. So make sure you're making your repayments on time. If you can pay them down early, that's great. But you need to look at your inv- the investment that you've made in your education as a return on investment and think about it in, in, those, in those terms. What's the return I'm getting? How do I eliminate this debt as fast as possible if that's your repayment strategy? Or how do I um, set up my personal finances so that I can afford to make these repayments? So really, uh, there's three simple steps there. Understand your current situation, work out which repayment plan is right for you, and then number three, stick with the plan. 
That's great. Thank you so much for, for those tips. I, I want to thank you so much, uh, Stephen, for your, your help, uh, for this um, really great in-depth look at um, ways that we can tackle student debt and uh, some guidance from, uh, from an expert in the field. Yes, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, hopefully everyone can get, uh, get their debt under control out there, all the listeners. Definitely. So besides reaching you at Twitter at Stephen J. Dash, is there any way for our listeners to get in contact with you if they have questions? Yeah, that's the that's probably the best source. The other option is support at credible.com. We have a team here at Credible who are specialists in um, helping people understand uh, their various options. Um, we, we cannot provide investment advice, but we can um, point people towards resources and and various options that they might have available through our contact center. So support at credible.com or just visit credible.com and you can chat live with one of our one of our people um, on the site there. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We hope that our listeners have enjoyed another episode of the ABA Law Student Podcast. We'd like to encourage you to subscribe to our show on iTunes. And once you've done that, take a moment to rate and review it as well. You can also tweet to us at at ABALSD and use the hashtag LawStudentPodcast to tell us what's on your mind. I'm at Fabiani Duarte. And I'm at Madison Burke, signing off. Thanks for listening. Work hard, play smart, and see you next time. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.